Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. With host Ranger Doug. And here's Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our 39th program on the Veterans Radio R 2.0. This is the 19th episode in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. Tonight, we will have with us Dr. Brian Downing, Jason Black, and Doug Wise, and we'll be discussing the theme similar to what we had last week, a stalemate with a pause, but for what? In other words, it appeared that at the point where this pause began, essentially declared by the Russians, who simply stopped fighting for a bit, they'd taken a pause. The war had somewhat stalemated back and forth a bit, but no major gains on either side. And the key thing then is what's to follow? Will the Russians have tooled up, brought in some new capabilities, perhaps retrained? Will they prepare the battlefield in a different way? Will they take advantage of new technologies? What have the Ukrainians done? Have they fortified their defenses? And have they done some of the things that we would have seen in World War II? The one thing absent from World War II, though, when the Soviets stood off against the Germans, was national mobilization on both sides with millions of men in the army and huge armies going at each other. Here, the combatants are relatively slim. We don't believe that there's any more than several hundred thousand involved on either side. And in direct fighting, it's not like it was where there was a vast line extending from north, south, or east, west, or whatever, between the Soviets and the Germans and their allies as they fought it off. And gradually then, once the Russians broke free, it was time to race into Germany and capture everything. That may not happen here. We don't think it will. But now recently, Mr. Putin and his foreign minister, Lavrov, have announced that they are now going to go deeper with the idea of securing more territory. Whether to retain that or not, we don't know. Does it become a a reason to bargain for the giving back of that territory for certain concessions? That's commonly what people do in fighting. But the Russians now, under a different flag than they were under the Soviets and with a different philosophy, may hold some of the same ideas as before, but we'll simply have to wait and see. The major thing that happens, though, is the oil and the energy and the food weapons are still in the hands of the Russians, and we'll have to see what they do with them. So it's also important to remember that tonight, all you'll hear is people's personal opinions, although everyone is a pro in the security business. We're not going into any secret documents or anything from work. Everything we get is based on articles that we read and from open sources. You can read these yourselves, but we simply perhaps interpret them a different way. There aren't going to be any partisan political discussions either. We don't uh, take on the leaders of our country and say this or that. That's not the purpose. It's just to provide relevant military information that anyone can listen to, but we orient on our veterans, our serving service people, and our citizens. Others who listen in, we know, happen to be the Chinese and the Russians. So uh, we'll get on with it. General Grange is going to be out for a while still, so we'll catch him in a future program. We are two programs on Veterans Broadcast Network, Uh, Us here at the uh, Veterans Radio R 2.0 and Patrick Scroggin over at Wounded But Not Broken. And we're also on 12 platforms. You can subscribe. There's website. There's all kinds of things that you can do. So in addition to Dr. Brian Downing, Doug Wise, and Jason Black, tonight we're also going to be joined by Claude Schmid at the end of the program for a segment on his 501c3 called The Veterans Last Patrol. I think you'll be fascinated by what he and his organization do. Without further ado, I'm going to move to the introductory portion of our program, and we'll move to meet our guests. Brian, 
Sir, over to you, please. Uh, Brian Downing here. Um, I avoided the draft during the Vietnam War by joining the Army when I was 17. Uh, three years later, I was 20. I had one year in Vietnam with South Vietnamese militias, a Corvette Stingray, and uh, the GI Bill. So I went off to school, Georgetown University of Chicago and Harvard. Taught school for a while. Um, been an independent writer and analyst ever since. Back to you, Doug. Great. Thank you. And then Jason, over to you. Thanks, Doug. My name is Jason Black. Did 29 years in the Army as an infantryman, a tanker, and a special forces soldier, and then uh, moved to another area and did some international security work for about four more years. Thanks. Great. Then, Doug, over to you. Uh, yeah, thanks for injured, Doug. Uh, I was a career Army officer, seconded to CIA, where I spent the next 30 years as a clandestine ops officer, chief of station four times, and finally retired as the deputy director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Back to you, sir. Thank you. Well, then, Brian, how about uh, tell us a bit about where you think we are in the war now? Last week, we noted that the Russian forces were taking a strategic pause after taking two cities in the eastern Donbass area, Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. Uh, the pause appears to be over. Russian probes are going on along the entire Donbass pocket in the east. The Ukrainians, who are fighting a defense in depth, have prepared positions just west of those two cities and all along the Donbass pocket. I don't see any significant Russian gains yet in the last week. Their troops are probably pretty tired and probably could have benefited from a longer strategic pause. Fresher troops are inexperienced and possibly less motivated. Uh, Russian artillery missions have gone down. The American-supplied HIMARS have taken a toll on Russian supply depots. The Russians are moving those depots out of artillery range, uh, out of HIMARS range, and uh, in some cases they're placing depots in populated areas, which will deter the Ukrainians from attacking. Russian troops, we're still seeing shuffling of the generals. That's not good for operations. Putin and a coterie of generals in Moscow are micromanaging the war. Um, Russia is increasingly concerned with the Crimea and the land bridge area. The Russian Navy has pulled its ships out of Sebastopol in the last week. They're afraid of HIMARS and other missiles hitting ships while they're docked. That's almost like the American Navy getting out of Norfolk. Fearful of losing the bridge to the east of Crimea as well. That connects a uh, very important area, um, the Kerch Strait Bridge. It supplies uh, Russian forces in the land bridge in the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, just north of the Crimea, the Ukrainians have badly damaged the uh, bridge across the Dnipro River, uh, which is vital to the Russian troops in Kherson. It was badly damaged by HIMARS. If it's repaired, it will be hit again. The Russian troops in and around Kherson are besieged. Now their supply lines are in jeopardy. There's a great deal of guerrilla activity in and around that city. Uh, the Russian position may be untenable. They may have to pull out. I don't know how they're going to cross the Dnipro. There's only one bridge up, and it's pretty far away from Kherson. So they may have to do it rather ungracefully ungrace by boat. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you. Jason, over to you, please. Hey, thanks, Ranger Doug. Um... Right now, looking uh, internal to Russia, there's a nationalist movement 
I don't know how well organized it is, but a bunch of pro-war voices are asking for Putin to upscale the special military operation to uh, more of a full-scale general mobilization, which would allow Putin and his folks to tap into more resources, push more troops and more equipment into into Ukraine uh, as they continue their, their onslaught there. So uh, we'll see whether that movement is successful or whether Putin kind of continues to keep it as a limited, as he says, special military operation, similar to what they did in Syria. Um, he's also supposed to go and visit Iran sometime, uh, I think this week or next. And that kind of indicates two things. Number one, that's probably the only place he can go outside Russia right now and, and, and see a friendly face, one of few places he can go. But it also uh, links in with something we had talked about in a, a previous episode. Uh, Iranians are preparing to provide Russia with uh, several hundred drones, some of which will be weapons capable. And I think Putin will go there, seal the deal, formalize it, and you'll see Iran also provide training uh, either in Iran or in Russia. And so my assessment of that is the days of the HIMARS are numbered. Once those drones hit the battlefield, you'll see the, the HIMARS become a hunted platform and its effectiveness will drop significantly. And we may see some attrition of those HIMARS. Uh, on the Ukrainian side, uh, his wife is now um, an emissary for the government of Ukraine. And we saw her speaking to the U.S. Congress this week. That's a new tactic. And it'd be interesting to see if her appeals for help and assistance resonate. Uh, even more than than his did as well. Thanks. Back to you. Great. Thank you. Doug, over to you. Uh, thanks for your Doug. Again, uh, I appreciate being on, on on the radio hour with my distinguished colleagues. Uh, I thought Brian did, gave a great tactical overview and brought us up to date. Just want to remind the, our, our listeners that, you know, the Russians are patient. They're brutal. They're thuggish. They're reptilian. Um, but they're, but they're, they're patient, and they're patient at tremendous cost. Uh, they've they've lost a, an infantry division's worth of soldiers already. They've lost an armored division's worth of armored vehicles. Uh, the cost to date to what they've accomplished has been significant. But again, uh, we got to keep in mind that the Russians are not uh, rushing. I mean, yeah, would they have loved to have had a uh, you know Gulf War one? Uh, yes. They, they would have. Uh, they expected it, quite frankly. And uh, a great surprise to them, the U Ukrainians have showed great resolve, determination, and courage, and enabled by, by the U.S. and Western allies uh, uh, as well. But keep in mind that for the Russians, for Vladimir Putin, this is not a decision made by him as a head of state. This is him made by Vladimir Putin called it a special military operation. What he should have said was, it's my personal military operation, and I'm committed to the eradication of Ukraine from the political landscape, the extermination of Ukrainian culture, the Ukrainian language, and the Ukrainian people. And he's in no hurry to do that, and there's no reason why he should be in a hurry. And uh, he's time on his side, and he will, at great cost, as I said, crunch and crunch and slowly just continue exactly what my colleagues have described they've been doing and what we've all seen them do, which is the Zhukov, Zhukov brutality of destroying everything in your path, move forward and repeat the process. 
And they'll continue that until uh, we have, you know, a capitulation or a total annihilation of Ukraine. I think one of the things that it has nothing to do with the with the Russians per se, but it's the behavior of Zelensky. I'm worried because he's starting to remove some very senior officials, uh, and I'm in no position to determine whether those were justified or not. I presume they were, at least from his perspective. But you know, when you remove the head of the intelligence service and the deputy, and you remove the chief prosecutor for war crimes, uh, I have to wonder what the, there's a ripple effect within the surviving Ukrainian government is. If he continues to do that, uh, and maybe with complete justification, maybe with, uh, you know, it's fully justified. The fact of the matter is it's going to create uncertainty, instability, and a little bit of chaos in the government. And at what point does the surviving senior leadership of Ukraine tolerate that before they actually take an action to remove uh, Zelensky? And my biggest fear is they'll petition the Russians for peace. It'll be interesting if they do that to see whether the Russians are even interested in that. But we'll see. Anyway, back to you, Ranger Doug. Thanks, Doug. Okay, then let's go to the next question. Uh, and that is, uh, what are the war aims of Russia versus uh, Ukraine? So, Brian, please take that and give us an idea of what you think both are. Uh, I think the Russians feel they have the formula to win this war. Uh, use heavy artillery relentlessly, ground attacks relentlessly across a broad front, mainly in the east. Grind down and break the Ukrainian army, drive west to Kiev, expand across the land bridge to Odessa, swallow the country up and annex it, and as Doug said, destroy Ukraine as a culture, as a nation, as a people. Scatter them the Ukrainians across the Russian periphery, you know, like the Assyrian Empire of old, uh, press others to flee to the West, destroy the museums, monuments, and history, and settle the area with loyalists. Zelensky is preparing another line of defense in the East, uh, this one just east of Krematorsk. Wear down the Russian forces as they keep coming, prepare for an offensive on the land bridge, and win a war of attrition. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thanks. Then, Jason, over to you. Yeah, I completely agree with what uh, Doug Wise said about um, Putin's goals of annihilating Ukraine culturally and politically. So unlike the Balkans back in the 90s where we saw ethnic cleansing and World War II where we saw mass extermination of demographic groups, uh, Putin, as part of his goal to restore the glory of the former Soviet Union on some level or in his mind, uh, can't allow Ukraine to continue to exist as a separate identity with its own culture, its own uh, identity. And so he's working to exterminate that, and, and we're already starting to see uh, rumblings of mass forced structured migration of ethnic Russians into areas that weren't traditionally ethnically Russian as he works towards that. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, I also think... Um, he is his his larger aim is a weakened and fractured and fearful Western Europe that's impotent to influence his future plans beyond Ukraine, and we see him playing both sides of that with carrots and sticks on the economic front right now, as he toys with Germany's emotions with the Nord Stream pipeline. It's going to be on. It's going to be off. You'll have energy this winter. You won't. Uh, he's, he controls all the variables in that situation, and he knows it, and he's using that 
to toy with their emotions and to cause havoc to, to their economy uh, and paralyze their ability to plan for anything in the future. And that is the intimidation factor and all of Western Europe is, is watching that. And then on the, on the carrot side, I saw that uh, Turkey and, and some representatives from the UN apparently cut a deal with Russia to facilitate export of, of Ukrainian grain. So that's his carrot. He's like, well, we're reasonable, despite the fact we have this war in Ukraine. That's our business, not yours. And of course, we want to help move that grain out so that there aren't uh, famine type events uh, around the world. So he's toying with people's emotions. So his larger goal beyond Ukraine is, again, to dominate Europe and cause them to, to question everything and, and naturally to isolate the United States and mitigate our influence on the continent. Thanks. Great. We'll pause now for a commercial and we'll be back to hear from Doug Wise. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Attention, looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated, it's cumbersome, and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Okay, and here we are back from the commercial. This is our 39th program, 19th in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine on the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. We're taking a look tonight at what might happen out of this strategic pause. Doug, then the question is, war aims of Russia versus Ukraine over to you. The war aims of Russia and Ukraine, I already, I already mentioned in my previous remarks that for Putin, this was a 
very personal fight. Yet at the same, and that's that's as Vladimir Putin, as as the head of state of of the Russian Federation, as both of my colleagues have highlighted multiple times already. Uh, this is not just a fight to be won and then done. This is part of a broader campaign plan. We've mentioned already, you know, weakening the West, uh, eroding the resolve, uh, dividing uh, the the West. Uh, if you look, I just came back from the Balkans, and that's just rising nationalism there, very akin to what we see in uh, in Hungary uh, and other places. You know, Serbia, obviously, Republic of Serbia. You have all the Russian hand behind that, and so this fight in Ukraine. We need to keep in mind that uh, Putin is able to do something that perhaps we in the West aren't able to do as well because he's not burdened by by rules. He's not burdened by democratic process. He's not burdened by, you know, norms of humanity and uh, and international law. And for him, this is just the first domino that he intends to knock over. And that we need to keep that in mind. So everything that we do today, we need to at least think through what will be the consequences of that, the second, third order effect, you know, a year, two years, three years down in the context of this fight in Ukraine being the first of what Putin sees as many fights. And again, as I've said on this radio hour before, we need to keep in mind that uh, the Russians you know, operate with an ethos that they don't have to win as long as we lose. And when you're operating with that ethos, uh, you have everything to gain and nothing to lose. And uh, when you have no rules to govern your behavior, then you can be pretty ruthless and very abnormal. Uh, and so this is going to be a strategic slog for us. And I think my colleagues have already started to indicate, as much of the media speculated, well, in fact, the U.S. and the West, and, and I think it was Jason mentioned about the First Lady of, of Ukraine being here, Zelenska, um, you know, will we get war-weary and will we end up just tiring and see this as a non-winnable fight, as Brian said? And I agree. Um, and that, uh, you know, ultimately we will no longer be willing and able to support uh it wouldn't surprise me one bit. But anyway, this is part of a much a much broader strategic set of aims by the head of state of, of Russia, Vladimir Putin, as well as a personal fight for him as Vladimir Putin. So anyway, back to you, Ranger Doug. Thanks, Doug. I've read of a couple of things, heard of a couple of things too that, that may be going on, but recently emerged in a report that now Mr. Putin has announced that since they've begun to use these HIMARS and have struck deeper, that he's now going to go deeper and going to take more of Ukraine. There's the word that uh, he's arranged to purchase from Iran a number of very sophisticated combat drones or unmanned aerial systems, unmanned aerial vehicles, UAV, UAS. There's also the possibility of some training that might have gone on. We're sticking to that war aim thing. Might any of this have changed Putin's war aims and what might uh, the Ukrainians have done in the pause? I'll run it back by the same route to Brian first. I don't think uh, Ukraine has done anything different. I think they're trying to get more high Mars. 
I think they're trying to get fighter jets from Sweden and France, and that will allow them to strike deeper into Russian-held territory and perhaps not too far into Russian territory itself. I think they have already done that around Belgorod and Rostov-on-Don, and I think you'll see them bringing the war inside Russia a little bit more. Jason, how about you? Well, I kind of feel like um, Ukraine has been uh, in trick-or-treat mode in terms of asking for weapon systems, capabilities, and ammunition, and perhaps it's time for the West, and particularly the United States, to talk about integrating those capabilities and combined arms in a joint fashion to provide uh, a holistic solution. The wonder weapon that the HIMARS is, is not going to be the wonder weapon as soon as Putin and, and, and Russia figures out how to counter it. And I think those drones from Iran are going to do that. And so um, instead of giving Ukraine what it wants, perhaps it's time for cooler heads at NATO headquarters and, and in the Beltway to start talking about what does Ukraine need in order to, to counter the Russian aggression in a joint fashion. That's going to be far more effective than pinpricks with, with boutique weapon systems. And so although Europe has been slow to deliver aid, perhaps that's not a bad thing. And perhaps putting together an air defense system with a, a long range precision strike system with a ground security capability with an intelligence and ISR system is a far better solution than just giving uh, the government of Ukraine what it asks for uh, because it makes them happy and looks good in the press. Thanks. Great. Thanks. Doug, over to you. Yeah, I don't have much to add to my to my colleagues. I, I think uh you know, Western Europe will grow more weary, more faster than we will. Uh, you know, they're going to be more pragmatic in, in their decision making. We're going to be more principled than ours. Uh, you know, the, 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 yeah, their second, third order affects global, yeah, everything from global warming to the economy and everything in between that's a byproduct of this tragic war uh, brought to us by, by Vladimir Putin. But the fact of the matter is, that, uh, and I think it was either Brian or Jason, I can't remember, said that, you know, uh, that the Russians will play the Germans, you know, they'll they'll like dangling catnip in, in, in front of a cat and then pulling it away or doing a little laser trick with the, with the cat. Uh, and actually it drives a greater degree of fear and stress if you just are randomizing the turning off and the turning on of of natural gas, as opposed to just turning it off and leaving it off permanently. But I think there's going to be some practical limits that our Western allies are going to reach at some point. And because they are closer and they are at greater risk and they are arguably, you know, put themselves and volunteered to be energy hostages of the Russian Federation uh, at great cost to their national security, as they're finding out. But I, uh, but I, I think that uh, you know we, we, the U.S. can need to continue to show leadership. We need to continue to show resolve. We can't show divisiveness, uh, and we got to stay, stay the course, and continue to support our Ukrainian allies as best as we possibly can. And for us to be able to, to enable and to, to amplify those capabilities that the Ukrainians are just so great at. And uh, and yet at the same time, I think as we've all alluded up to this point in the broadcast, you know, the, the Russians are not static. The Russians are learning every day. The Russians are paying attention. They're not going to learn as fast as we will. 
They're not going to do, you know, rock drills. They're not going to do AARs. They're not going to have, you know, formal out briefs and stuff. They're not going to do what we do that makes our military so preeminent in the world today. But what the Russians will do is slowly, at great cost, learn hard lessons, and they will apply those lessons, and they will just inexorably move forward and continue to crush Ukraine. Back to you, sir. Great. Okay, let's take a break for a commercial. We'll be back in a few minutes. Thank you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 39th program, our 19th in the series, uh, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. So at this point, we'll move to our next question, which is what are the noticeable activities of and or effects in or on the U.S., NATO, the EU, the world, including the PRC and any other things going on in your mind? Uh, Brian, over to you. I'd like to add on to something that Jason said about the wheat negotiations. Putin uh, does not, by and large, give a darn about world hunger, but he has to be very concerned about the hunger of 1.4 billion Chinese, and more importantly, a few dozen people on the Politburo and Central Committee. They don't want to see unrest in their country, and they don't want to see unrest in the countries that are already in their co-prosperity sphere. So I'm sure Putin has to be very mindful of China here. If he doesn't have support from China, he can't have any war. 
if he doesn't have Chinese support, Putin could be gone. The Chinese probably have a lot of influence with generals and the oligarchs. Shifting to Saudi Arabia, uh, Ukraine and the United States want the Saudis to boost oil productions. Lower prices will hurt Russian export revenue and help Western governments. Today, the Saudis said that they don't have much capacity to boost production. Well, that's pretty dubious as it was only two years ago they greatly increased production in a deliberate effort to crush American oil production, and they were successful. American oil production plummeted about two years ago. I'll leave it at that. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Great. Jason, then please, over to you. Uh, Breaking it out between the U.S., NATO, and the EU, and the PRC, and the rest of the world. Uh, see, there's an announcement from the administration to provide a whopping four more HIMARS launchers to Ukraine. And this steady, slow trickle of military hardware from the United States to Ukraine is, is not helping. It's not, gonna, it's not decisive, and it's definitely not going to achieve anything significant on the battlefield. And furthermore, all you're doing by doing that, all, all the government is doing by doing that, is allowing Russia the time it needs uh, as an adaptive threat to learn and counter the, the the effects of the high Mars on its logistics and its C2 targets. So uh, that's what's going on from the United States. Nothing decisive and, and not enough and too slow. Similar situation from NATO and EU. A bunch of nations there have signed up to provide advanced weapon systems, aid, munitions, supplies. Uh, and if I look at Germany, they are dragging their feet and not delivering on their promises, if I speak very generally. And, and that is probably, if, if not definitely, driven by Putin's hijinks with the Nord Stream pipeline and his on-again, off-again messaging on, on gas to Western Europe this winter. Um, the PRC continues to watch and learn from the West's response to Russian aggression, and they are feeding that into their playbook as they look towards the Indo-Pacific region and their territorial and influence goals there. And I think that they are emboldened by what they see. Thanks. Great. And Doug, over to you. Yeah, just let me offer a couple of final comments and build on what my colleagues have already said. Uh, I think it was interesting at the Aspen Security Forum, uh, Richard Moore, the the head of British SIS MI6 said that the right quote, the Russians have run out of steam. Uh, I think when, uh, you know, Brian mentioned that the Germans may have run out of steam. <laughs> I think that's the running out of steam on our side is, is going to be way more important to us in the future than the Russians running out of steam because the Russians might not be running out of steam. But, uh, you know, I, I defer to those that, with classified information who know far better than me on this issue. Uh, I thought it was also interesting that Bill Burns, the director of CIA, kind of echoed that comment. And then they, they both, I think, addressed, you know, the the physical health of, of Vladimir Putin, because I know probably uh, hope is not a plan, but I think there's a lot of hope out there that somehow that Putin would be somehow weakened physically, physiologically, or weakened in some way and be subject to some coup d'etat. And I think we are, the head of two major intelligence services have now put that to rest. And I think that Putin is powerfully strong and he's winning. And uh, he knows that he's got a, a tremendous number of advantages on his side. 
I think the, uh, the second, third order effects, when you look, I think some have already been addressed. You know, the potential for famine in, in China added on to the, uh, to the really brutal and inept COVID response uh, from the Xi Jinping government. And then you look for the potential for uh, for famine in North Africa. And I just remind the audience that it wasn't so long ago that the lack of wheat caused the collapse of all of Arab North Africa in the, in the Arab Spring. Uh, and so there's the possibility for that. Plus, you know, just nations who have tremendous agricultural capability, they need the, the Russian and the Ukrainian nitrogen products to fertilize the fields. Uh, and then again, uh, both of my colleagues have mentioned Xi Jinping sitting on the sidelines, kind of stroking his chin um, when he has a moment to, to do that, trying to figure out what does all this mean to him uh, on his designs on, on Taiwan. And I think also I, I would think it would be very interesting and maybe for another uh, another podcast, and maybe we have, a, a, I would not have any expertise on this, but. But it'd be interesting to see what lessons our own military has taken away from from this and how they're applying that. It's been a number of public announcements and a number of briefings and a number of comments in the press that uh, you know senior leadership of the U.S. military is paying close attention. And I'm not surprised. It's that kind of behavior that makes our military just world class and, and, and top of the pile. Nobody else better. Uh, but it, it, it is. This is a weird war. You know, uh, open source intelligence dominates over classified intelligence. You have the asymmetry, the uh, the irregularity. Uh, you know, you have long distance, you, you know, indirect fire engagement. You have the use of armed drones that are very unsophisticated yet highly capable. Um, you know, tremendous amount of unpredictability that has come into play in this war, as it does in all wars. But the reality is, you know, I, I think it'd be interesting to see, you know, what are, what are our colleagues who are wearing the uniform? What 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 are they taking away from from this fight? Back to you, sir. Great, that's a that's a great observation. All of you, each of these answers have been terrific. Next, then, and this is one where we we really have skipped over, but since we've done it a couple of times, skipping over it, I just want to touch it once, and that is, what would be the status of any ceasefire truce or peace efforts? Uh, they've had a pause, which generally just happened because the Russians stopped. Have you heard of anything regarding anything like that, Brian? Uh, I'm afraid not. The only thing close to that would be the negotiations over wheat exports and a few POW exchanges. But I think by and large, both sides are just trying to wear out the other the other side. Back to you. Great. Jason, over to you. I agree with Brian. Thanks. Great. Doug, over to you. Yeah, I mean, uh, I... <laughs> yeah. I have to agree with, with Brian and, and Jason as well. You don't negotiate when you're winning. There's no advantage to Vladimir Putin to negotiate. Negotiation from a Russian standpoint shows weakness. That's the way the Russian will, the cultural lens they'll look through to, to see this. There's no reason the Russians should negotiate except on minor little technical issues uh, with very local outcomes. Back to you, sir. Great. No, I agree. I, I have not seen or heard of anything. I just hope that uh, the appropriate people have used the pause correctly and, and taking a lesson from the Battle of Kursk, which is in Ukraine, that the Ukrainians have prepared appropriately because what's coming is probably going to be more intense and possibly a bit different than what they've seen already. Then what can we look forward to in the coming weeks? Then, Brian, over to you. 
Uh, Jason noted that the war is shifting to be uh, to a battle of Iranian drones against American HIMARS, and that's probably right on the mark. I'll say that Ukrainian drones, the effectiveness of Ukrainian drones has dropped very sharply in the last few weeks because of Russian electronic warfare, and I think we have to help Ukraine do the same against these uh, Iranian supplies drones. Um, Chechens. We think of Chechens as fighting alongside the Russians, and there certainly are some, but there are two Chechen battalions fighting against Russia in, in Ukraine. And uh, one of the commanders announced that he was going to conduct operations in Chechnya, which is inside Russian territory in the Caucasus. There was a very nasty uprising war there, two of them really, back in the 90s. Uh, Putin crushed them. Uh, he established a warlord there, gave him a lot of money for him to keep law and order. And uh, nonetheless, I think there's a great deal of hostility among Chechens. So there could be some uh, trouble back in the Chechen area of the Russian Federation. Furthermore, there are Chechens in Syria, many of them, hundreds, maybe a few thousand, serving with various rebel groups, and they may... Uh, feel the opportunity to attack Russian bases there. They have a big naval base at, uh, what is it, Tartus, and then a couple air bases at Latakia and uh, Palmyra. They could be attacked. And somebody could pick up the game and start attacking Russian forces in Libya and elsewhere. Actually, you know, Russia looks like it's on its back foot. Uh, it certainly has a lot of manpower allocated elsewhere. It might be a time for uh, various groups to attack them elsewhere in the world. Russian manpower situation, heavy casualties in the last few months, the CIA estimate of 15,000 dead. Sounds very, very light. Uh, the Ukrainian estimate is about 39,000 Russian dead. Uh, truth might be somewhere in the middle. Putin is reluctant to mobilize for war. I, I think that would undermine his narrative of being in control. And it could trigger some anti-war sentiment, which is presently quite low. Uh, most Russians, I believe, support the war, uh, support the war in the sense of going to rallies, uh, write notes, and uh, voice support. Do they want to fight in the war? That's an entirely different thing. So I think Putin has to be pretty careful about sending a lot of draftees off to the steppes of Ukraine. He has these volunteer programs in various oblasts of Russia trying to use financial incentives to uh, pull in volunteers. We'll see how that works. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much. Jason, sir, over to you. If I could predict the future, uh, I would predict doom and gloom. <laughs> now, I think um, we're going to see uh, the capability of armed Iranian drones uh, matched up against the precision exquisite weapon systems that we provided change the nature of the fight uh, on the ground in Ukraine. Don't assess that that will be decisive in any effect, but it will change the nature of the fight and we'll see perhaps a similar transition to what we saw when we moved from tank focused maneuver warfare on the part of the Russians uh, to a war of firepower and artillery and, and outright non-precise destruction of, of populated areas to break the will of the Ukrainian people. Uh, if you look across the Foreign Instruments National Power, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic 
Russia has failed in the diplomatic arena. They haven't made any friends with their exploits in Ukraine. Uh, informationally, uh, they have definitely not portrayed themselves in a positive light and have failed to convince any uh, of the, the world outside of their own population that this fight is just or, or correct or righteous. Militarily, things are not going according to plan, and the fight continues to evolve and drag on and on and on with increasing attrition. But he just discovered the big E, or, or he's starting to leverage the big E. I wouldn't say he discovered it um, with the energy uh, influence he has over Western Europe. And then you see him with his green exports trying to manipulate and play play on emotions and perhaps generate some, some without generating goodwill, at least generate some positions of advantage for, for himself. He, he's not doing it out of the goodness of his heart. But he ba essentially has opened up a second front in the war, and it's on the economic side. It's not a military front. It's an economic front. And I think that will be far more beneficial to Russia's objectives than anything you're trying to do with your military inside Ukraine. Weather's going to get start to get cold in 90 days, and U.S. midterm elections are going to distract American government, uh, two of the three branches, as well as the American population from what's going on in Europe. And so you could see uh, the impact of his energy manipulation hitting Western Europe at the same time that you have this new clash of drones versus HIMARS at the same time you have us moving into the midterm elections. And that could be a very dynamic future. Thanks. Great, Jason. Thanks. Doug, over to you. Yeah, if I, uh, thanks, Ranger Doug. I, I think if I could broadly and generalize what my colleagues have said is in answer to your question, we're going to see more of the same, uh, continued brutality and continued glacial but inexorable progress on the battlefield because the Russians have mass, they have time on their hands, they're not burdened by rules. Uh, something it, it struck me as my colleagues were speaking uh, for our, our, uh, listenership, uh, our veterans out there to keep in mind is that the Russians are impervious to and insoluble in shame. So, you know, doing something that generates scorn and critical comments out of the most senior leadership of the global community of nations, the Russians don't care. That doesn't affect them a bit. And uh, I was also struck when, uh, you know, we were discussing, I think it was Brian brought up, you know, the Lithuanian, the Ukrainian estimate of Russian losses versus Bill Burns estimate of, uh, in the end, it doesn't matter because the Russians don't care. They'll pay any price to accomplish these goals. And the other thing, in addition to, we don't have to, to win, we just want you to lose kind of ethos. The other thing for our, our listenership to keep in mind is the Russian culture is, you know, suffering is a civic duty. Suffering is not something, it's just genetically encoded into, into the Russians. And so, and that, and, and suffering up to the point of, of losing your life is, is, is expected. And unlike here in the West where, you know, unacceptable, whatever that is, relative term, unacceptable casualties could result in huge outcry and media reaction and governments and military leaders being sensitive to that as they should. Uh, in Russia, none of that will matter. Uh, none of that will matter. And a totalitarian state which controls the message, controls the organs of messaging, uh, the, the, the cost of, 
of disagreeing with Vladimir Putin is a bullet in the head, as, as about seven oligarchs have discovered already, and, uh, and a number of people jailed. Uh, and uh, so I agree with Jason. I said that the future does not look very bright, uh, either in the war zone or far from the war zone. So back to you, Ranger Doug. A couple of things. I, I am reminded of the fact that uh, I believe uh, Mr. Putin will be able to use the energy weapon as a real lever to manipulate Europe through NATO and the EU into more or less telling Ukraine it's time to come to an agreement. This may actually serve to uh, help Ukraine avoiding a, losing additional territory. A uh, common technique of, of many countries is to think about seizing terrain that you intend to give back because uh, that's part of an agreement you wish to receive. But in this case, Russia has nothing to give back. Whatever it takes, it will not give back. So somehow the fight needs to be stopped soon if it can be. And I think the, the uh, impending energy situation as the weather gets cold will, will provide that. One thing that probably will result from the, the food insecurity and the energy insecurity is there will be, and there already are several countries which are undergoing turmoil right now, uh, among them Sri Lanka. Italy actually is even having some trouble and in, in, in the Europeans themselves. But understand today that since the recent re- resignation of the, uh, the uh, Italian leadership, uh, Putin has actually offered Italy more energy at a reduced price. So it's kind of like a, an incentive for changing to a more favorable governmental perspective. There may be more of that as well. Also, this is not just two combatants going at each other at a line that doesn't move. Uh, most of the war is being fought inside Ukraine. Ukrainian civilians are dying. Uh, the Ukrainians have not been able to strike that deep into Russia. So while the Ukrainians are desperate, the Russians are getting angry because they're being told of their losses, but they're not even yet suffering on the level of the Ukrainians. So they have a long way to go to even get to that suffering point. But uh, they'll, by this time, I think, be, be very angry. If anything does come to where, as Doug mentioned, it, it comes to the Russians, yes, suffering is a part of their soul, and they're, they're proud to do it, and it is a huge motivator for them. So those are just some thoughts I'd like to add. So we're, we're down then to the last question. Just like to have you... Uh, make a closing statement, and uh, we'll move first to Brian. Uh, This is not a small war. This is the most important war since World War II, not just for the United States or Europe, for the entire world. Putin wants to restore the Romanov Soviet Empire, and if he is successful in Ukraine, it will cast a shadow over Western Europe. He will be emboldened, he will lick his wounds, and then to see, and then he will try to grab more territory, perhaps the Baltic states, parts of Poland, uh, Romania, Moldova. Uh, this could endanger the unity and effectiveness of democratic institutions in Western Europe. And it would cast America's position in the world in, in a good deal of doubt. Some European states will recognize Russian power and try to make turn, come to terms with Putin. Uh, same thing with East Asia vis-a-vis China. This war could be, and I think Russia and China want it to be, ushering in a new world order 
of Sino-Russian greatness based on commodities, especially oil, access to markets, and military force. This is a very important war. Back to you, Doc. Jason, over to you, please. Thank you, Brian. I agree with Brian. Uh, and uh, this looks like a small uh, regional dust-up, but it has the potential to, to cascade into something much larger at, at the global level. The West, the United States, Western Europe, and other nations have enjoyed a peace dividend since the fall of the former Soviet Union. And for almost 30 years, or for over 30 years now, we've been able to focus on other issues, social issues, climate issues, to the point that I believe Western governments and populations have become distracted by those issues. And uh, the time has come to start paying attention to security issues uh, and issues of sovereignty and human rights. Um, And if the West is not able to mount a coherent counter to what's going on in Ukraine right now, let's stop that now. Uh, Russia's actions will embolden China, North Korea, Iran. This will spread beyond just a Russian threat and Russian aggression. Those other bad actors out there will take note of the the, the limp response from the West and look for opportunities to expand their influence through aggressive action as well. So the sooner we nip this in the bud, uh, the better. Thanks. Great, Jason. Thank you very much. Uh, Doug, over to you. Yeah, I was struck by by uh, Jason's comment. I think the bud's going to bite us, I think, or nip us, uh, I think. Uh, in terms of Bri- uh, Brian's comments, all I can say is, wow, uh, there's nothing that I could add that could make that any better and more compelling or more useful. And uh, Jason's comments as well in terms of, you know, just the, the existential impact that this tragedy is going to have. And it's going to have second, third, fourth, tertiary, you know, 10 order effects, you know, for generations afterwards. And you can only imagine, you know, if Putin is successful in in Ukraine and he continues to execute his campaign plan, his strategic plan, shouldn't say campaign plan, his strategic plan, you know, what the effect is going to be. And then once all this is done, to to Jason's comment, um, you know, what's the cost of kind of stopping the bleeding? You know, what's the cost of trying to handle this, just the the human tragedy? Uh, What's the cost? And I'm not talking about the cost to the families who've lost loved ones. I'm talking about the financial cost, the whole, I mean, you know, what what is the community of nations going to do once this is all done? Uh, Probably too early to really start thinking through that, but but uh, that's going to play into what both of my colleagues have said, which is this is not just a local phenomenon. This is a global phenomenon. And this is uh, literally an ephemeral phenomenon. It's going to be the gift of Christmas future for hundreds of Christmases uh, in the future. Anyway, as as usual, uh, Ranger Doug, it's an honor and a pleasure to be with distinguished colleagues and, and to be able to be part of Dave Grange's uh, enterprise here to bring some, you know, education and, and uh, discussion to our, our heroic veterans and give a voice to the voiceless. So anyway, thank you much. Great. Thanks. And thank all of you and thank all of our guests over these last weeks. It's been a, a wonderful series on uh, this situation in Ukraine. I would just make a, a concluding comment at this part of the program. We'll have a second part after we're done here that, uh, 
Lenin popularized Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, whom they who took the moniker Nikolai Lenin, uh, the leader of the revolution that gave us the Soviet Union and the first leader of the Soviet nation, to probe with the bayonet. And if you encounter resistance, probe elsewhere. But if you don't counter encounter resistance, uh, continue to probe. And I think that that's part of the way both the Russians and the Chinese operate. Mao had similar sayings coming from Sun Tzu. But the basic idea is in in the kinds of governments that they feature, China, Russia, they haven't changed much from the World War II era governments of, of the respective countries. In other words, Chiang Kai-shek was very tough, didn't do very well against Mao eventually, but Mao emerged from World War II, very powerful. Obviously, Lenin gave way to Stalin and others, but always the Russian leadership, Soviet leadership has been uh, along the same lines. In the West at the time, they encountered leaders that were very tough and governments that were very tough and stood them off. And so you were able to get East and West Berlin and make some trades and set up the Warsaw Pact, not with all of what Russia might have been able to take over, but an agreed series. And now here we are with NATO and the EU and these other countries that came from uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, having joined uh, in some ways NATO and the EU. And of course, this frustrates Russia a lot. I I have the feeling that uh, Putin and Xi Jinping have correctly sized up their opposition. They're, They're not organized and, and they're not necessarily as tough as those World War II era leaders. And as a result, there isn't really a way to predict uh, the long-term outcome other than unless the Western leaders, and I say Western when I mean leaders that are not of China and Russia, uh, are going to have to figure out how to toughen up a bit in order to stand them off in a number of ways because they're not just moving militarily. They're moving with all of the instruments of national power, the diplomatic, the informational, the military, the economic, and so forth. Uh, would you would you three uh, agree with those comments? Brian, anything to add? Uh, sorry, I don't have anything to add. I'm speechless. Well, thank you. Jason? Nothing to add. Doug? Yeah, I, I suffer by being number three the, the entire evening this evening, and so everything's been said, uh, and you were very eloquent and said it very well indeed. So I have nothing further. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not casting aspersions on on anyone's leadership in the West. The problem is, we've continued to develop new ideas from World War II. Unfortunately, the Chinese, the Russians, and certain others are still stuck in a mindset that is actually rooted in times long before World War II. And if we're going to win, we've got to begin to understand and figure out how to cope with that. So. We've completed the security portion of this program. Thank you. And uh, I really appreciate the three of you tonight helping me work through these issues. It's been a great program. So now uh, we'll pause for a commercial and I'll be back with the next portion of the program. This is Veterans Radio R 2.0. This is our 39th program and our 19th in this series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. Uh, 
If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC Veterans Disability Application Caddy is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application in identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. We're back, and here's your host, Ranger Doug. Welcome back from the break. Uh, this is Ranger Doug. This is our 39th program on the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. Our 19th program in this series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Tonight, though, we're going to introduce a veterans issue, and I have with me Mr. Claude Schmid, who is running an organization called Veterans Last Patrol. And uh, a friend of mine suggested that that we meet, and so we're meeting here tonight. And I would like to say, first of all, thank you for joining us. Please describe what Veterans Last Patrol is. Well, thank you, Ranger Doug, for having me on. Uh, Veterans Last Patrol is a nonprofit that focuses on veterans in end-of-life care, uh, specifically hospice care or other conditions where the veteran is nearing the end of his life. We have a three-part mission, and it is to bring friendships, honors, and support to these veterans on their last patrol. Uh, They can be all over the country. In fact, they are all over the country. They're often found in nursing homes, hospice houses, or in at-home hospice care. About half of hospice in the nation today is done at home. The patient prefers to stay there if possible. And so we're looking to bring those three elements to these veterans that are on their last patrol. Uh, friendships, honor ceremonies, and emergency assistance. We seek uh, volunteers around the country. And we started three years ago, and uh, we're growing pretty rapidly because I think many in the veterans community realize this is a little bit of an unmet need. That's great. Well, when and why did you start it? I started it about just a little bit over three years ago, and the story is this. Uh, on my last assignment on active duty, I was the chief of the Wounded Warrior Flight Evacuation Program, and that was the uh, operation that brought our casualties from overseas 
back to CONUS. And in the course of that, I got to meet uh, many thousands of our nation's wounded and their families. And I heard their stories and I heard what made them tick as service members. And I also learned from that experience in dealing with the wounded that in adversity and in great adversity more than ever, uh, we need friendships. So these wounded warriors, no matter their condition, no matter what happened to them, they wanted to talk to somebody. They wanted to tell their stories. And so when I was getting off of active duty, I was thinking about that and how I could continue to serve. And about the same time, I remembered uh, a childhood story where my mother had uh, visited a lady that was in hospice care. And she started to befriend this lady and she came home in the evenings once a week to our dinner table. And me and my two younger brothers were sitting around the dinner table. And sometime during the course of the dinner, she would tell us a little bit about her experiences visiting this lady in hospice care. And of course, how the lady was inevitably declining and her condition would change. And But she would tell us some about what they spoke about and how it meant, what it meant for her and for the patient to visit. So I remember that. Now, I remember my uh, experiences with the wounded warriors and I said, okay, well, maybe I should look into the veterans community and find out what happens to veterans in the last, very last chapter of their life. So I started researching that a little bit. I inquired with a local hospice and I pretty soon found out that uh, hospice all over the nation are seeking volunteers to assist them with veterans and all patients in hospice care. But in particular, they understand the importance of that veteran-to-veteran bond, and they need veterans to help them connect one more time to these veterans that are on what we call now the last patrol. So we decided to uh, do something about that because we found out that uh, not too many veterans are volunteering in that field, and there's a big need. Uh, Today, about 1.5 million Americans go into hospice care every year, and somewhere between 6 to 8% of that number are veterans. So there are veterans all over the country that are going to be going into hospice care. And a lot of times in hospice care, they kind of will fall out of the community. You know, they may disappear for some months or maybe even a year or more into a nursing home or a care facility, and uh, they lose connection with former friends, former associates, and many times they're they're very lonely, and I just don't think that's right. I think the, vil- the volunteers and veterans that are working with us don't think that's right, and we want to make sure that all the way through end-of-life care, our nation's veterans know that other veterans are nearby and, and want to help them. Wow. I love this. This is a great effort. How can veterans and even people on active duty or citizens themselves, because we we really try to reach all three. How can they assist your mission? What can they do to help you? Right, Doug, that's a great question. We have uh, a lot of things that we need. Uh, We have, uh, of course, the need around the country for these types of volunteers. So wherever you may be, retired, on active duty, if you've got some extra time and you want to volunteer and you're interested in finding out whether somebody's on their last patrol in your own community, uh, reach out to us. Uh, we have a website, uh, veteranlastpatrol.org. We're very active on social media. Again, veteranlastpatrol.org, Facebook, Instagram, and the rest of them. And you can see there what we're doing. You can connect with us. And no matter where you are, big city, small, military installation, or way out in the 
Wild West somewhere. There's there are folks out there that are going to be going into hospice care, and you will find that some of these people are veterans. And we're looking for men and women, patriots, to visit with these veterans wherever they may be and establish those friendships uh, that they so much need on their last patrol. Uh, other ways to help, we got two major events coming up. Uh, if you are a motorcyclist or a car club enthusiast, members of groups like that, we have our third annual honor ride coming up on the 8th of October. And that's a effort on our part to have rides of cars and motorcycles around the country on the same day, 8th of October, to visit in groups, the uh, nursing homes that are in their communities, and bring uh, thanks and gratitude to those veteran patients. So that's our honor ride. It's on October 8th. There's information about that on our website, but reach out to us if you think you might have a group that might want to join us on an endeavor like that. A biker or a car club member that thinks they want to participate and bring an honor to these veterans on their last patrol, uh, reach out to us and we'll help you uh, Get organized in your community. That event is going to be October 8th. The next big event we have coming up, which is also an annual event, is um, our Operation Holiday Salute. This will be the fourth year we're doing that. Uh, the Operation Holiday Salute is a national effort to get cards of gratitude and holiday cards, Christmas cards, from Americans around the country, young and old, Get those cards to us, personalize them the best you can, and we will get those cards delivered through our volunteer network to hospices around the country uh, for their veteran patients. Uh, last year, as an example, we got uh, holiday card packets for 7,000 uh, American veterans around the country in hospice care, and our volunteers delivered those in the communities where they live. So those are two big things we've got coming up and that we need um, a lot of help for each of them. That's incredible. I mean, I, I see uh, what looked like kind of unorganized rides around our area from time to time. But uh, I'll tell you, that is a beautiful, a beautiful activity. But it, it makes me think about, and I just went through hospice and other situations with family and friends, and I, I know how difficult it was just to be a part of that and be a family member. Is it is it tough for a volunteer to put him or herself out there for another vet who's going to pass away soon? Well, it certainly can be tough, and it is tough for a lot of people. Uh, many people uh, shy away from end-of-life care situations. You know, where our society today, in some extent, is kind of uh, chaptered out the dying process. We don't see too much of it anymore. And uh, they disappear in facilities and many times they're forgotten. But I believe for veterans in particular, you know, we should support each other. We've been teammates through our time in the military. And, uh, you know, we call it the last patrol because as veterans, members of the veteran community, as active service members, you know, we understand the concept of patrolling air, sea, and land patrols. It's a core part of what we do. And the way we look at it in last patrol is your last patrol is your final patrol. And like any patrols, air, sea, or land, they're best done as a team. And as a team, you can succeed in those patrols. So we want uh, volunteers and other veterans to help. And I believe veterans can and do help us 
And uh, certainly it's, it's something that um, we owe each other, I believe. Boy, I think you dialed that in perfectly. I mean, I can, I can certainly see and agree. And I, I do visit uh, VA and other facilities to see vets. And I've been fortunate to meet vets I see walking around or wheeling around and have struck up some great friendships with people that are wounded, but of course not at their, at their time of, uh, of passing on. So this is, this is something to consider. I, I hope our audience is taking this in. We're going to take a quick break for a commercial and we'll be back in a moment. Thank you very much, Claude. And I'll be back with you on the other side. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, our 39th program, our 19th in the series. Russia moves into Ukraine and we'll be right back. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC... Veterans Disability Application Caddy is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. We're back, and here's your host, Ranger Doug. Thank you, and welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Veterans Radio R2.0, our 39th program, and the 19th in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. I'm here at this segment of the program with Claude Schmid, who is the uh, founder and the operator of Veterans Last Patrol. Uh, He's described how important the services that he renders are and his organization, of course. Uh, A few more questions for you, Claude, if you don't mind. It sounds like something that someone does where they give up really something of great importance to them, their time and, of course, great emotions to team up with someone who is in the last stages. Uh, time for a battle buddy, for example. 
but they also get a great deal, you mentioned? I think they do, for sure. You know, you get a chance to connect with somebody that uh, maybe uh, has life experiences that are very different from you. Uh, you, Despite the fact you may have military service in common, you know, they've had their own story, uh, their own history. And, uh, you know, there's look at the World War II generation, for instance. These guys, there's... About 16 million Americans served in World War II. It's estimated that somewhere around 150 to 200,000 remain. Uh, so not too many of them left. And the ones that are are in their mid-90s, so they're going fast. And when you volunteer for a mission like Lash Patrol, you've got the opportunity to visit and meet folks like that. Uh, of course, other conflicts as well. And they will share their stories with you. And you hear about... Uh, how life was long ago, you'll understand some of the common military experiences, but also some of the differences that they had to face. And uh, you just bring a lot of a lot of pleasure to them. I, you know, I've got a lot of stories that I could share with you. And uh, I think that's one of the great things about it is you hear these stories. And at the same time, you know, you're doing good because you're bringing a battle buddy into the situation for a veteran who's not going to be with us very much longer. Well, thank you, and, and and thank you for clarifying that. I wondered, I wondered how that worked. You mentioned uh, the honor ride, and then something you've had called Operation Holiday Salute. What are those all about? So, the honor ride is an event we're doing this year on October eighth. Uh, that's a car and motorcycle event. We're looking for car and motorcycle groups from around the country, uh, wherever you may be. If you've got a group or you're a member of a group, and you think that uh, you might want to participate. With that in your community, reach out to us. Uh, last year, we did a ride in six different states. Uh, this year, we hope to at least double that. And um, it's basically in your own community. So you can ride to the nursing homes that are nearby to where you might ordinarily be riding and visit the facilities and honor their veteran patients. Uh, we have a program that we I'll work with you on to do that. So if you think you might want to be part of that ride and help us honor veterans around the country, uh, that will be October 8th. And then Operation Holiday Salute is our holiday season campaign where we're trying to get as many holiday cards to veterans in hospice care, uh, veterans on their last patrol around the country as we can. Uh, last year, we raised from from school kids, from churches, from military units, from police departments, from individual patriots that wanted to write cards to us, and they would write these cards uh, for the holiday season and wishing a Merry Christmas to veterans that will probably be participating in their very last holiday season. And we want to bring them this holiday cheer one more time. Uh, those cards uh, last year went to about 7,000 veterans in hospice care around the country, and this year our goal is to get reach uh, 10,000 veterans in hospice care around the country. And that takes a lot of work. We're looking for uh, card writers. We're looking for sponsors of that program and uh, assistance in making sure we can get his card, these cards out to as many veterans as we can. Great. Boy, this is, this is really something you're doing. What are ways that the audience can learn more about you if they want to get more involved in what you're doing? A website, anything like that that you've got? Social media? Give it to me. Yes, sir. We have a website. It's veteranlastpatrol.org, veteranlastpatrol.org. Uh, a lot of information there about upcoming events, about stories that we've uh, had in the past with ceremonies that we do, honor ceremonies we do, 
there's a, a resource page there for folks that are dealing with uh, end-of-life care situations. Uh, and there's uh, just a lot of um, information about our past and, and how you can help and uh, what we're doing as a nonprofit. We're also active on social media, both Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. If you search for Veterans Last Patrol, you'll find us there and uh, LinkedIn as well. And there's uh, daily just about there's a story we post about a veteran that we visited or a veteran that we're helping. And uh, they're all over this country. You know, every country, uh, every county rather in the country has hospice needs. And many of these have veterans. And we're calling on the veterans community to help us take care of those folks by bringing them friendships, honors, and support uh, while they're on their last patrol. Well, that's great. And thank you. Thank you so much for what you're doing, what your organization does, and, and for joining us tonight. Just for interest's sake, how many people do you have assisting you here? We have about 400 volunteers around the country right now, and we have uh, at least one volunteer in 24 states, so almost half the country. And we've got uh, small teams in, in different areas of the country that um, sometimes gather together as a group, a group of veterans and other community members, perhaps, and do these honor ceremonies that we have for veterans. And uh, those honor ceremonies involve kind of a special celebration of life for a veteran who's on his last patrol in the weeks and months before he passes away. So our uh, our main system main weapon system, rather, is volunteers. So we look for volunteers wherever someone is interested in supporting our mission. That's great. Are you organized in any particular way uh, as a 501c3 or anything like that? Yes, we are a 5013c, and uh, information about us is available online. And uh, we, are, uh, we do seek donations to help us support some of these missions that we have. I'm glad I asked because I was concerned about that, and I, I wanted to make sure we got that in as well. That's terrific. Boy, I'll tell you, I'm so glad that John Fenzel recommended we get together. It's been a real honor, a real honor to have you on the program. And uh, I hope you succeed in your upcoming October uh, event and the other events you have planned. I know that where I'll be, I'll be around vets, but I'll be working in another state. But I will try to make a run through a VA hospital just to look in on some people and, and just get an idea of what may be going on there and maybe uh, I can clue you into what I saw where I would be. It's in the United States, and I'm sure I can I can run a decent recon, but I can't lurk, unfortunately, because of the work hours. But I will I will mark October the 8th and do something and let you know about it. Thank you so much for your support, Doug. Really appreciate it. I can't tell you how much it means to have you on here tonight, and thank you so much for what you're doing and being a part of our program. Over to you. Well, I really appreciate that. It was my privilege, and thank you so much for having me on. Well, that's our 39th program on the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0 and our 19th in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Tonight, we've talked about the pause and what it may mean, what may be coming next, and what we will do uh, from here. We also were lucky to be joined tonight by Brian Downing, Jason Black, and Doug Wise. We were also joined tonight by our friend Claude Schmid, who runs the, the wonderful 501c3 Veterans Last Patrol, which uh, is an organization that searches out for veterans that are in hospice and VA hospitals and elsewhere, and, and then sends veterans in that join the organization as volunteers to visit with these people in their last days. Uh, what a wonderful thing to do. And obviously, all vets uh, ought to check into that contact information and see what you can do. I'm certainly going to be doing it. And their big day will be October 8th, but they also advocate doing it whenever you get the opportunity. So again, 
This is our 39th program, 19th in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to listen to Wounded But Not Broken with Patrick Scroggin. We're on 12 platforms plus Amazon, Spotify, Apple, our own RSS. Please subscribe when you get the opportunity. And uh, we'll say goodbye for now. This is Ranger Doug out. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, No One Left Behind.